Hello, welcome to MSU Today. I'm Bill Beekman, Vice President and Director of Athletics at Michigan State University. And I'm joined today by Thomas Glassmacher, uh, Director of FRIB, the Facility for Rare Isotope Beams. Uh, Thomas came to Michigan State in 1992, working with the National Superconducting Cyclotron, Cyclotron Laboratory. And uh, joined the Department of Physics and Astronomy as a faculty member in 1995. Currently, Thomas is a university distinguished professor. And in 2008, he led the team that prepared the winning FRIB proposal, bringing FRIB to Michigan State University. Since then, he's led a team uh, of 850 employees to run the FRIB laboratory uh, within Michigan State University. And can you give us a sense of what what is FRIB and what does it do? Well, thank you, Bill. I am pleased to join you here. So FRIB is the world's most powerful heavy iron accelerator. We can accelerate any element from hydrogen to uranium to half the speed of light at quite a high intensity. By doing that, we can make rare isotopes that once existed on Earth have long since decayed and are continued to being made in the universe and in stars. And we can make those isotopes available to scientists from all over the country so they can study their properties and see how they can be applied um, to better everybody's life. So uh, one of the most fascinating things I've experienced on campus was uh, the opportunity on several occasions to tour FRIB as it was under construction and to see, you know, how it sort of how, how it how it all works. And um, yeah, could you ex- explain to our listeners how you at, at one end of a uh, uh, of this process, you start out with a with an isotope and, and how it uh, is pushed and pulled magnetically at, at, at incredibly high rates of speed and then then when it how does it stop what what happens at the end all right well how about i start at the beginning we take an element and we make a vapor out of it by heating it up so let's say we take gold we just heat up the gold and have a gold vapor and we put it into a really hot electron gas in a magnetic bottle and the electrons on the gold get knocked off, and now we have a positively charged gold um, atom or ion, and we put it in an electric field. And the electric field is um, so that it's always negative in front of the positive ion, and so that unlike charges attract each other. And then we have a little hole in there and the ion drifts through and the minute or the split second it drifts through, we change the polarity of that plate if you want to negative and so the, sorry, to positive and the positive charge is now, you know, pushed from the back and sees in front of it a negative charge. And so just like a thousand dominoes or so, this these, um, ions see always a negative charge in front of them and a positive charge behind them. And so they move along in these little buckets and they become faster and faster. And in the end, they have the speed of light. So now they're moving along these gold ions at half the speed of light. And we impinge the beam of particles on a carbon piece, on a piece of carbon. And 
it breaks up. The gold breaks up. It'll break into anything that has fewer than the um, 79 protons of the gold and the neutrons. And so now we have a whole bunch of rare isotopes. These rare isotopes are also moving at half the speed of light, and we use you know, a set of magnets to filter out the ones that the scientists wanted us to give them. And then we send them down in a vacuum pipe to the experiments. The whole thing moves in vacuum because the whole, sorry, the whole beam always moves in vacuum because if it was moving in air, it'd be like scattered all over the place. But the upshot is that we use electrostatic um, charges or potentials to speed up the beam, and then we use a piece of carbon to stop it. And when it hits the carbon, it breaks into anything that has fewer protons and neutrons, and then we filter those out those isotopes out in a set of magnets and give them to the scientists. And the whole thing, the whole process, making the beam, accelerating the beam, breaking up the beam, filtering out the isotopes we want, you know, takes less than a millionth of a second. And then we just do that all day long. Actually, we do it all week long. And so the average experiment is like five to seven days. And folks and students and Scientists come from all over the country. They set up in an area, while in the neighboring area, somebody else does an experiment. Um, you know, and then we just serve them like four or five thousand hours a year, and then in the summer we shut down, and then over the holidays. That that's a really important point. I mean, I think that to, just to to reiterate, those uh, those pushes and pulls of uh, magnetic pushes and pulls happen so fast that you accelerate something to the speed of light in like a millionth of a second, which is you're just extraordinary. But uh, oh, it, it's, it's half the speed of light. Uh, you know, to, to accelerate anything of mass to speed of light, you need infinite energy. But we go only half the speed of light. Yeah, so, um, but but what what's also important, as you mentioned, is that this facility that exists on our campus in East Lansing isn't just for our Department of Physics or researchers at MSU, but it's it's what's called a national user facility that really serves the the United States and the entire world. So, um, so you've got researchers coming literally from all points across the globe to get time uh, to run their experiments on this machine. That's right. So. We are a Department of Energy Office of Science, Scientific User Facility. The Office of Science in the Energy Department is the largest funder of basic science in the country uh, for the kind of things that um, basic science where industry, um, you know, doesn't have a need to pay for it. And part of being that kind of scientific user facility is that uh, folks uh, or scientists have to write proposals to use the facility. They have to promise to publish the results. And then these proposals get reviewed by a panel of other scientists. And if they're ranked high enough, they get allocated that beam time. And, and, and these scientists come from all over the country and also from all over the world. I could be a scientist in just about any country in the world, and I could write a proposal and if my proposal is deemed meritorious by a group of scientists, then they'll allocate me time on the machine. And uh, and when my uh, when my time is available, I uh, 
I, I, I come to East Lansing and, uh, and, and run my experiment. Yeah, that's just about right. So the average experiment has teams of 30 to 50 people. It's, it's, um, you know, these instruments are too hard to run just with one scientist. So you got to convince the panel that you have a group of people who can pull it off and get the data analyzed. And so, you know, typical experiments about a week long, 30 to 50 collaborators, and they come, you know, some, some of those collaborations are also from different countries. So they come here a couple of weeks before, set up their instruments, get everything going, then run for the week or two, and then they need to calibrate their devices and then they take their instruments back down. Um, we have about um, 1,500 scientists in our user group, and they come, you know, from from, you know, probably about 100 countries in the world. Now, are there other uh, other user facilities like this around the country or around the world that, depending on the kind of experiment you're trying to do, one machine like ours here at Michigan State might be better or or there might be some other tool at some other uh, place that the, the your experiment is better suited for and so you'd go there yeah so um around the world in you know rare isotope science there is a big facility in japan there's one in france and the germans um, had one they're renovating theirs and they're building up um, a new one just like um, we at msu have had the national superconducting cyclotron lab actually going back to the 60s and we started making isotopes in the 1990s. So we have worldwide competition. Um, in the end, EFRIB will be the most powerful facility, but uh, depending on the instruments, there may be applications or, or experiments where you want, want to go to Japan or Germany or France. So there is a friendly competition amongst those facilities. Um, our accelerator is the most modern, the most powerful. Um, but, you know, and then, then scientists go where the best opportunities are. So this really extraordinary piece of equipment um, that, that fills you know, sort of a, a massive, massive room, many feet underground, um, was a, uh, an undertaking that took you know, many, many years in, in the making. Uh, from uh, an initial uh, proposal, uh, I want to say in the, uh, the the late '90s that uh, that didn't get funded, and then and then a second crack at it uh, for the EFRIB proposal that did get funded. How, how how do you go about, or how do you assemble a team to to build this machine? Because sort of by definition, it's the only one on Earth that exists. And so you've got to uh, have some pretty incredible uh, design work, whether it's the civil construction or the the uh, the, the magnets uh, or, or all the other components that go into it to make sure that uh, once you get the the huge, huge uh, uh, commitment from the federal government, that uh, once you put all the pieces together, the darn thing's actually going to work. Right. So that's really an interesting Part. Um, since it's one of a kind, you can't um, really hire somebody to get a blueprint. But what you need, what we ended up doing is we looked around the world and found some of the folks who built similar but different one of a kind machines in the past, and we invited them to join us. 
And then we listened to their stories and their experiences. And we started um, making sketches and drawings. And we also looked at our own experience. Then we found some um, industrial partners and we um, you know, have an A&E out of Detroit. We have a construction management firm out of Southfield. Um, and we found really good industrial partners who were willing to put up with our multiple iterations and our um, back and forth as we developed, uh, um, you know, during the design development. Because in the end, you got to integrate the, um, the machine with the building. And then the machine and the building and the supporting infrastructure have to, have to support the science. And, you know, as scientists, we always have another idea and we're never done because we like to improve things. And that kind of drove probably some of the uh, A&E and CM folks a little bit crazy, but they were polite about it. And so we, we got this team of scientists and uh, Michigan-based firms, and then, you know, suppliers from all around the country who make one-of-a-kind machinery, and you bring it all together. So in some sense, we're kind of like a big system integrator, but we also, you know, the we, we need to figure out the design intent, and then we got to go to companies and convince them that this is exciting because our value proposition on the procurement is a little bit weird. It's a one-of-a-kind stuff. It's not in the catalog, very little follow-on business, but it's exciting and maybe makes the world a little bit of a better place. And um, the great thing about um, you know, the Michigan-based construction and then the Midwest-focused uh, machine shops and, and fabricators is that we found, you know, like... We had we have about a thousand suppliers. We found a thousand partners who were willing to put up with us and help us with this. So when you're ordering these these parts with what must be just really extraordinary uh, specifications, uh, did you did you ever uh, get a part that uh, came into East Lansing uh, after a you know, much awaited period of time that that didn't fit that had to you know, or, or or pretty much does does everything did everything come together okay? Do you run into glitches like that when you build a machine like this? Oh, we run into all kinds of glitches. So the, in the end, we need to make sure that the specifications we give are very comfortable for the supplier. So we got to find the suppliers who do who build things similar to the ones we want, who can extend within their comfort zone to the product we need. Um and, and that's our job to write the specifications, right? Because if you over-specify, um, you know, that's kind of like the going, it just that never works out good. So if we, we have all kinds of glitches. I mean, um, just like anything, I mean, big ones like firms go bankrupt because, you know, uh, uh, little ones where we messed up, uh, we didn't catch stuff in the design review. And then, you know, you just rework it. I mean, part of the, these big projects is you kind of make a plan and then reality sets in and then you got to replan and deal with what happened. And that's kind of the cycle. And you hope that not too many of the plans have to be replanned, but you know, it's a, it's part of the deal. You got to just go with the flow and react with reasonable choices to what just happened. You know, that commodity prices go up or commodity prices go down uh, 
labor is in abundant supply, is in short supply, uh, a pandemic happens. I mean, all these things happen over, this is a 10-year project. So a lot of things happen in 10 years. One of the, uh, I think one of the very special things about uh, the the National Superconducting Cyclotron having been on our campus for so many years, and now uh, EFRIB, is that uh, although a, a, a scientist based at Michigan State could go run their their experiment per, perhaps on somebody else's machine, the the fact that 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 machine sits on our campus means that we really become a uh, a gathering place for uh, many of the world's uh, best scientists and. Uh, and 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 equally importantly, a uh, a place where uh, students can come and get their their PhD, get their doctoral degree, and um, and and we can because we have the the tools here on our campus. It's a very appealing place for uh, students to come and learn, and in learning and and growing and and getting their degrees become the the next generation of scientists that perhaps decades from now will build whatever the next you know, greatest version of EFRIB is. Yeah, and they make discoveries along the way. I mean, that to me is kind of one of the key features of EFRIB. It's a world-class machine facility on the campus of a research-intensive university. A re- university. And we got the opportunity to um, expose students who come to study at MSU to, to, to EFRIB. We give them tours. Some of them have jobs here. Some of them do undergraduate research here. And by, by engaging in nuclear science and accelerator physics, um, they see what's possible. And then they start to imagine a career in that field. And then they, 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 they take a career in that field. And that's true for nuclear science, um, for nuclear astrophysics, but also for um, like cryogenic engineering. We run one of the probably the most energy efficient helium liquefaction plant in the country, maybe on Earth. I don't know. And that's cryogenic engineering. It's something we didn't have at MSU, but now we have it. And students who come here um, I don't know, to be automotive engineers or some other thought of engineers, you know, they they come to EFRIP, they see giant giant motors and uh, huge cold boxes and heat exchangers, and they go into that field. And nobody else in the country is teaching that. And so we become um, the key supplier of an educated workforce in, in certain fields. And we can do that because we have good students on campus and we have the facility right here and we show them what we got and they find it exciting and start to pursue a career. Same thing happens in science. And that, that's a really fascinating point that I want to emphasize. The, uh, um, the cryogenic capability comes about because the, the magnets that are pushing and pulling these, these isotopes uh, have to be cooled at extraordinary temperatures. So, when you uh, because these are one-off projects you've got to have that expertise to create those extreme extremely cold uh, environments and that then spins off a whole another set of uh, of research opportunities and uh, and exploration that's you know, that's really not you know, maybe not specific to 
to to rare isotopes, but that is you know is a uh, is a whole sort of another another sector of, of science unto itself that uh, where where we where we excel because it's such a critical part of the machine. Yeah, that's a really good point, Bill. The the um, key technology in Efrib is uh, is is um, superconducting um, pieces of metal. Efrib is the first domestic superconducting accelerator where most of those cavities were built domestically. Until now, they were bought from Europe. So we found a partner in Indiana and taught them to do that. And the feature of this um, metal, niobium, is that it's superconducting when you make it really cold. And that's very energy efficient, the superconductivity uh, makes it so that there is no um, energy lost because due to heat. But to make it cold, we need to liquefy helium. And helium um, is expensive, and we have a closed-loop system where we take the helium and then liquefy it to 4 degrees above absolute zero, and then um, we cool those resonators, and then the helium warms up to maybe 60 degrees above absolute zero, and then we reliquify it. So we don't lose any of the helium because it's kind of precious, expensive, and hard to come by. But we had to build this, um, we call it cryogenic plant. It's a helium liquefaction machine and, uh, you know, has big uh, compressors and, you know, a bunch of heat exchangers and a bunch of plumbing. And like you say, that's a thing in itself. And that's where we can now offer students educational opportunities. It's an engineering discipline. So that together with a control system, for example, that um, controls our superconducting resonators, you know, with a bunch of other systems. So there is all these sub-disciplines or all these disciplines that come together to make this accelerator work. And then that's all in addition to the science we do. And those are um, things where we can have students study and learn and then, you know, imagine a career in that, those fields and, and choose those careers. Uh, so, Thomas, the, uh, I remember when the project uh, began and we were advocating uh, to the Department of Energy that uh, they put the uh, EFRIB at Michigan State University, that there was really quite extraordinary uh, bipartisan support. Uh, letters were signed by both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, a number of uh, our state's labor leaders, in addition to corporate CEOs, signed on. Uh, and, and everybody was, was engaged because really the project was in the best interests of everybody in the state of Michigan. So could you share with us what, what that impact is on our, on our state? Yeah, and we do very much appreciate the bipartisan support, the bicameral support EFRIP has enjoyed over the last 10 years. I mean, there is many arguments you can make. You can make one of um, investment and tax revenue. So there is, a, there is a financial argument. There is a jobs argument. There is a knowledge-based economy argument um, that we um, attract bright people to come here to work at EFRIP and they settle in, in, in mid-Michigan. Um, you know, they, they just maybe some of them form their own companies. We're now talking to a big, um, you know, Fortune 50 firms, you know, who want to do experiments at EFRIP. So it's a, it's a, um, you know, all these arguments are, 
are good arguments. Um, and some are, like I said, are just financial jobs, knowledge. Those are the big buckets. In addition, it's good for the country because we'll make isotopes um, that are um, beneficial to society. Some of them are short-lived. You can't send them out with um, express mail or airplane. So th th those studies will happen on this campus. Um, we're gonna train the next generation of scientists also gonna happen here. Uh, the facility for rare isotope beams, I'm sure takes up a tremendous amount of your time, but when you do have free time, uh, what do you do for fun? What, uh, what, what things get your, uh, your, your mind in other places and out of the office? Uh, well, most, so the last few years, there hasn't been so much time. So I like to walk and bicycle and just not think about it. But I want to, um, you know, it's, uh, when we bid on this effort job, we had no idea really how much work it would be. But we also, you know, we, we got this incredible team and I think we just really humbled as a team and as a university to be afforded the opportunity to build this national facility for the country and for the scientists from the, of the world. And um, it, it's really, it, it, in the beginning, we, we just, um, you know, wrote the proposal and then we won the job and then we got started. And it's only in the last year or two that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And that's a really good feeling because the important part is the accelerator is working. We um, you know, commissioned the accelerator already this last year will be spent hooking it up to the um, existing facility. And there were many moments uh, where you know, we weren't quite sure what the next right step is, but in the end, it all worked out with the help on, and advice of many, many people. And we really appreciate the public's trust placed in us to make this one-of-a-kind thing work. Uh, well, uh, Thomas, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, the facility for rare isotope beams uh, on our campus at Michigan State University in East Lansing is an extraordinary asset, not only for our university, but for the entire state. Your leadership of this project for uh, so many of the last uh, really 20 years uh, has just been uh, been extraordinary, and, uh, and and we can't thank you enough for taking a small amount of your time uh, today to share that with our listeners really uh, across Michigan and the world. So thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you so much.